Hi, everybody, and welcome to Coach's Corner. I am just so excited to have today's guest on, and it's been really amazing for me to, in the past several months, interview some people that I've really looked up to for years, some some OGs in the personal development industry, and Gay Hendricks is definitely one of those people. I think I first heard of him... I don't know, decades ago. And his book, The Big Leap, has been something that I've recommended and read and and has been one of the the books that has really, really shifted things for me and changed my perspective on things. And he has a new book out called The Genius Zone, which we're going to talk about. And I'll tell you a little bit more about him in a moment. You're going to love this interview. He tells an amazing story that has so many great nuggets in it and his perspective on life and spirituality and what our genius zone is, is just so refreshing. And you can just tell this is a man who's done his work. This is a man who's really embodied in the wisdom that he shares. So Gay Hendricks has been a leader in the fields of relationship transformation and mind-body transformation for more than 45 years. After earning his PhD from Stanford in 1974, he served as professor of counseling psychology at the University of Colorado for 21 years. He has written more than 40 books, including bestsellers such as The Five Wishes, The Big Leap, Conscious Loving, and Conscious Loving Ever After. The last two he co-authored with his co-author and mate for more than 35 years, Dr. Kathleen Hendricks. He's also a mystery novelist with a series of five books featuring the Tibetan Buddhist private detective, as well as a new mystery series. His latest book, Conscious Luck, reveals eight ways to change your fortune through the power of intention. He has appeared on more than 500 radio and TV shows, including... Oprah. His new book, The Genius Zone, was published this year, and you're going to love what he has to share about that. Before we dive in, I want to check in with you. Have you gotten your Organifi products? Remember, when you go to Organifi.com slash over it, you get 20% off all Organifi products. So I know that so many of you right now, you want to keep your immune system up, you want to stay healthy, and you don't want to put like a lot of work and energy into it, right? Because sometimes just life is enough and thinking, oh my gosh, how do I make my green juice or what do I put in my smoothie or how do I stay healthy with life on the go? Well, that's why Organifi is so great. It's a line of organic superfood blends that offer plant-based nutrition with high quality ingredients and less than three grams of sugar. They have an immunity pack, their green juice, their red juice. I really love their turmeric gold, which makes an awesome turmeric latte, iced or cold. You can do it however you want. And I know I can really count on the ingredients and I'm getting good quality nutrition in an easy way that really tastes amazing too. So get your Organifi products. It's not a one-time thing. And every time you go and order from Organifi.com slash over it, you get 20% off. So again, Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash over it. And now on to my interview with Gay Hendricks. Gay, welcome to the show. As, as I said to you before we started recording, I have read your books and followed you for probably a, f- a couple decades now, and it is just such a thrill to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Christine. It's, it's my pleasure to be here with you. Mm, I feel really honored. I mean, you have been in the field, a leader in the field of personal development, mind-body transformation for over 45 years. So you've, you've seen a lot, you've been through a lot. And I'd like to start with, you know, the past year and a half has been really challenging for a lot of people. There's been a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, a lot of what I call expectation hangovers, things not going according to plan, 
quite a bit of loss, whether it's loss of life or loss of job or loss of an ideal. And I'm just wondering what, two questions, two-part question. First, what you've seen in the past year and a half as the most challenging thing for people to be able to, to handle and process and move through. And then second, as someone with so much experience in personal transformation and body-mind connection, how have you navigated the uncertainty? Mm, well, thank you. Uh, well, the first, the first question, one thing I've noticed over the past year, year and a half, is an escalation of anxiety. And then, of course, anxiety gets focused on one thing or the other as we try to figure out what's making us anxious. And so I think over the past year, year and a half, it's been doubly anxiety producing because, mm. you know, you have politicians, you know, you have the scientists telling you to wear a mask and then politicians making fun of people who wear masks and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So you got the whole set of feelings that you're having, plus the kind of outlandish craziness of the whole media landscape over the past year or two, or maybe even longer. And so I think those two things working together kind of escalate each other. So I think that one of the main things that happens in a time like this is that people's ordinary anxiety and ordinary sadness and ordinary anger gets heightened by what's going on around us. And so I think that in a way, the problem is ancient. And mm. it's also right now because, you know, the Greeks had a word that used to appear in, in medical books called alexithymia. Hmm. And to the Greeks, alexithymia was one of the big problems that we had to deal with at any moment. And alexithymia is basically means difficulty in contacting your emotions on the physical level, being out of touch with your body, mm. basically. And mm. so the Greeks had figured out that one of the things that gets us stuck as human beings is not just the feelings we have, but our attempts to resist those feelings and control those feelings and get away from those feelings. That's alexithymia in action, is when you're trying to escape from reality by going up into your mind or up into fantasy or up into your beliefs, rather than actually being in touch with what's immediate and going on in this here and now moment. Mm. And so that's uh, one of the big problems that we all have to contend with in escalated times like these is how to stay in touch with our bodies and how to honor our emotions, uh, but not have them overwhelm us. And so that's a dance that we have to do throughout life, uh, kind of the dance of alexithymia, mm -hmm. but it, it's especially acute these days, I think. Wow. Well, my husband's Greek and it was, was his first language. I'm going to ask him if he's ever heard of that term because it is brilliant. And I think that's an epidemic. Alexithymia. Yeah. I mean, that's a massive epidemic that we have in this world. And I think we're, it's encouraged, you know, it's encouraged to just distract ourselves or think positively or have another glass of wine or binge on that Netflix series. And I think a lot of us lose touch with our ability to feel 
And well, I think I hear you saying that everything the past year and a half, whether it was the uncertainty or the fear or whatever really got people, it kind of just exacerbated what was already there in terms of the alexithymia issue. It just kind of like made it even worse. Yes. And that, I believe, is one of the high good possibilities Mm -hmm. of what's happening now, because it's putting that issue up in people's minds and putting that issue up in people's hearts. And I think it's a good thing, ultimately, but it's also a very unsettling thing. As you were speaking there, I was just having a a remembrance of a really great quotation from a James Joyce novel of many years ago. I think it was Finnegan's Wake. And at one point he said, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. <laughs> and that's that's alexithymia in action, where we leave our bodies behind and don't pay attention to that and live more up in our beliefs and concepts. And as you know, beliefs and concepts can get wildly out of touch with reality. Yes. You know, that it's just one of the capabilities of the human mind is to have those wild flights of creative imagination, which leads us to invent wonderful things and leads Mozart to be able to create his symphonies and Marie Curie to be able to make scientific advances. But those same qualities of of mind that allow us to make scientific breakthroughs can also be employed to create all sorts of crazy conspiracy theories and you know uh, crazy beliefs about mm-hmm. how things are and and people escape from their bodies by dwelling in those kind of concepts and it's very destructive because the way i look at it too is i think our spirituality is much more centrally connected to how we feel in any given moment than many people pay attention to. In other words, in my experience, at our very center, we're spiritual beings, Mm -hmm. and we're walking around with this incredible body wrapped around that, but at the very center of everything, and, and you could even test this experientially. In other words, let yourself next time you feel scared or angry or sad or whatever the emotion is, let yourself simply feel that until it begins to dissolve. And after it dissolves, you get to this place of what I call pure consciousness, which is that spiritual center of ourselves that it's at the bottom of everything and at the center of everything. And it's also around everything. And so If we acknowledge that, then we get to be whole people going through life with a mind, a body, emotions, a spiritual center. We get to be whole human beings. But if we deny any parts of those, like if we deny our emotions or or deny that spiritual aspect of us, it's kind of like a car rattling along in a misaligned state. You know, the road mm. is okay, but our experience of it is <laughs> rough and vibrationally mm-hmm. Uh, out of touch. And so that's why it's important to start at the very center of ourselves and really acknowledge ourselves as spiritual beings having a human experience rather than humans having an occasional spiritual experience that we uh, 
acknowledge the primacy of spirit because it was here before we got here. Mm. And we were that pure spirit before all of the layers of programming and conditioning and experience got laid on top of that. Mm -hmm. That's how I know when I look at a human being now, because I've, I've cultured myself to feel that quality of pure consciousness in myself over the past 50 years of meditation practice and things like that, because I feel that in every moment in myself, I can also see that in the person I'm working with. So it's helpful because then I can help them invite that spirit forth. And I know that what will happen is a lot of the other stuff that they think are problems drops away the more you open up to that center of ourselves. You know, I, I want to uh, also let everybody know that when I'm talking about pure consciousness, I'm also talking about one of my favorite things to talk about, which is genius, mm. which I believe that genius is aligned with pure consciousness. You know, we've had geniuses throughout history that had to, uh, you know, go out and live in the middle of the woods to tap their genius or, you know, use alcohol and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's the real way to contact our genius. The real way is to tune in more to who we really are and find the essence of what we most love to do, because that way you can then begin to organize your life around what you most love to do rather than what you think you have to do in order to survive and thrive here. Mm, I love that. And I definitely want to talk about the genius zone which is your latest book. I just want to go back to something you connected because I think it's so important. One of the questions I get very frequently is how do I connect to my spirituality? Like conceptually I get, I'm a spiritual being having a human experience and how do I connect with it? And for me, one of the ways has been getting in my body and feeling my feelings. I've had some of the most profound spiritual experiences, which I would describe as just feeling this amazing amount of unconditional love and peace running through my body after allowing myself to go into my deep sadness and grief or my rage or whatever it may be. And so have you, have you found that like being in our body and allowing ourselves to feel often is a doorway into that pure consciousness? I really am glad you're saying that, Christine, because that was actually the moment that led me into my spirituality. Mm. Do we have time for me to tell a, a yeah. quick story about oh, absolutely. Okay. okay, yeah. When I was 24 years old, I had an enlightenment experience the hard way. And I'll tell you what it, uh, happened. I'm very different now than I was when I was 24 years old. Picture me, well, picture me now. I'm six feet tall. I weigh about 180, 185 pounds. So I look all an athletic, basically. And so, uh, but 50 years ago, when I was 24 years old, I'd always struggled with childhood obesity and I was mm. very obese by the time I was 24 years old. I also smoked heavily, smoked cigarettes heavily. Mm. And I was in a very troubled relationship that I'd been in for a couple of years and was trying to get out of it, but I didn't have enough money to actually move into a different place. So I was actually <laughs> stuck. And so 
at age 24, a lot of things were going wrong in my life. And so one afternoon, I went out for a walk to kind of clear my head after having had an argument uh, with the woman I was with at the time. And it was up in the uh, foothills of the White Mountains in New Hampshire. I taught at a boarding school for delinquent boys. Mm. And I was a counselor and teacher there and also ran one of the dormitories that had 24 kids in it. And so it was a kind of a day and night job. And so I went out for a walk to kind of clear my head and it had snowed the night before. And I stepped on a place where the snow had covered up a big patch of ice and my feet shot out from under me and I went <laughs> down on this frozen road Mm. flat on my back. And I didn't knock myself out. I, I did hit my head, but I didn't knock myself out. More like, I call it an out of Hendrix experience because <laughs> it, knocked, it knocked me out of my usual way of seeing myself. And for about two minutes, I had the most amazing, enlightening experience. What happened was as I was laying there, kind of knocked out of my normal self, I could feel for the first time all of these layers of emotion in my body. And that was hugely, I mean, it was shocking in a way mm. because I was at the time extremely intellectual. I was an English major in college and I just kind of got this job at the school for delinquent boys because I couldn't find any other kind of uh, job in, in education that I could get because I didn't have a teaching license or anything. So I had this experience during this two minutes of I could feel this layer of anger that was stuck in my body about all the things I'd never been able to express my anger about, about being fat as a kid and being mm -hmm. called fatty and all those kinds of things. And then underneath that, I could feel this layer of sadness that I'd always carried around, mm -hmm. uh, especially about my father, uh, his death. Uh, my father died while my mother was pregnant with me. And so I mm -hmm. never knew him in, in the flesh. And so that had always left a kind of a big hole. But I didn't even realize it until that moment, how much that was down inside me. And I could also feel this huge layer of fear down around in my belly that I'd always carried around. And I could feel how tight my muscles were in my belly just mm. to keep myself from feeling those feelings. And so the magic happened, though, as I just let myself feel all of those feelings for the first time in my life. And as they began to kind of fade, I became aware of, of this other phenomenon I call pure consciousness, which was this consciousness that was like ocean and sky that held everything in it, and it didn't change. It mm. was there. It was just this beautiful, always-on thing, and I realized that's who I really am. That's That's how I came into this life, and all of the stuff like you know, physical stuff like my glandular system being messed up and all that. So I gained weight easily. All of that was just stuff that happened to be there because I'd landed in this particular body. Mm -hmm. And so the real me, though, was that pure consciousness underneath everything. And I could feel how the other stuff I needed to just open up and love it as it was, because there was nothing I could do about it. It was there. Mm. And and as I did that, I opened up and I felt like I was able to feel and love 
all of myself at one time for the first time in my life. And a lot of it had to do with that feeling of pure consciousness. And so let me tell you what happened. After that, hmm. I began to come out of that state, kind of like waking up from a dream. And I felt some despair in a way because I felt so great for those couple of minutes because I was just letting myself feel everything that I was. And I let all my defenses down. But I could feel my defenses coming back and I could feel myself shivering, you know, cold and I could feel, oh, no, I want a cigarette, you know, and oh, no, <laughs> I've got to walk back home for a mile and a half and got to go back to the apartment. You know, <laughs> and What's going to happen when I walk in the door? Uh, so I could feel this despair coming in. But then I did this thing that I think saved my life, which I made a commitment. It was just me and the universe. So I made this commitment to doing everything I could to feeling that pure consciousness in every moment. So I kind of said to the universe, I'm going to do whatever it takes here. So I feel that way in every moment of my life. Mm -hmm. And wow, that started an amazing odyssey. And uh, I just have to add one more little element to the story, uh, because it shows you the kind of magic that happens when you begin to set big intentions like that. Uh, the next day, I get a call from a buddy of mine, Neil Marinello, who uh, had worked at the school the year before, the, the school for delinquents. And he said, hey, I'm going up uh, near your house or near the school this afternoon to hear a lecture by one of my old Harvard professors. And he said, do you want to come? And I said, well, you know, uh, what, what's it about? And he said, well, he's just come back from India and he's had a big enlightenment experience and he's changed his name. <laughs> he's no longer calling himself Richard Alpert. Now he's calling himself Baba Ram Das. And <laughs> see, you know, being an English major and all that, I did not know anything about psychology or spirituality. Mm -hmm. In fact, I made fun of that. I thought it was stupid. And I said, Baba Ramdas, you know, give me a break. And he said, no, I think you'd, you'd be interested because he was my best professor at Harvard. And I said, okay. So I get in his car and we drive 30 miles down the road to Webster Lake, New Hampshire. And we go in this big, beautiful estate on the lake. Uh, he was from, uh, Ramdas was from a very wealthy family and his father was there. It was this great guy. And uh, so um, we go on the grounds of the estate and there's about a dozen young people there all dressed in Indian clothing with saris and kind of flowing uh, clothing. And they've all got little baskets of fruit and they came over and invited me to have a banana. <laughs> and uh, I, I was, who are these people? Is this some kind of cult I've wandered into? But then Ram Dass sat us down in a circle and he proceeded to speak for about three hours without any notes. Mm -hmm. And he would talk for a while. And it was the most fascinating stuff, you know, about life and spirit and all, all of these kind of... Uh, I, I, I don't know. Have you... Did you meet Ram Dass during his lifetime? I, I saw him speak once, thankfully. I never met him in person, but I got to see him speak once. And so I, I he, he would speak and then... He would just rest for a little while, and then he would sometimes look down at a picture, an eight by ten picture of his guru, and who was a grizzled elderly man, 
and I, I was just in a way dumbfounded. I'd never mm-hmm. seen anything like this in my life because when I went in to teach a class with these juvenile delinquent kids, I always had notes and a lesson plan. And where <laughs> was Ramdas getting this mm-hmm. stuff from? You know, he would just close his eyes and go off into space, and then he would talk for a half an hour without stopping. Mm-hmm. And anyway, I asked him afterwards. I, I came over and I said, "You know, I may never see you again, but I just love to ask you a couple of questions." It turned out I knew him for you know. 50 years until he passed away recently. I said, I may never see you again. So would you just kind of look at me and give me some advice? Mm. I said, I just had this experience yesterday and I described the experience on the ice and that kind of lit him up, you know, he, wow, you know, that's interesting. And I, and I said, but look at me, you know, I weigh 300 pounds. I'm in this crappy job. I'm in this crappy relationship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just kind of ran it down. I don't like my car. You know, and uh, Everything's wrong in my life. And I smoke three packs of Marlboros a day. And he said, well, you know, in India, over here in America, you might go to therapy for something like that. But over in India, you might learn how to do some yoga and breathing exercises. And you'd especially learn how to meditate. And you'd find out, you know, how to cultivate that part of yourself that you tapped into yesterday. Mm. And and I said, well, um, where would I go to learn something like that? And he got this little look on his face, kind of a mysterious look. And he said, oh, don't worry, something will come to you. <laughs> and I Love was sort that. of, what is this crap, you know? <laughs> and, uh, so next thing I know, I'm down at the grocery store later on, and I was pushing my cart out, and I stopped to check out, and next to me was a little kiosk of paperback books. Remember now, this is the year 1969. Hmm. Paperback books at that time cost either 65 cents or the really expensive one cost 95 cents, like the best sellers. <laughs> and uh, it sounds ridiculous, but that was also at a time when gasoline only cost 25 cents a gallon. Wow. So, <laughs> if you can imagine. Uh, so um, I looked over and there was a book called Yoga, Youth and Reincarnation by Jess Stern. Hmm. And I picked it up while I was waiting in line. And <laughs> what it was, was a book entirely made up of yoga postures, meditation techniques, breathing. It had a whole section on pranayama and a whole section on chanting and a whole section on meditation. Not just, you know, the the tech. I mean, it was about the techniques, not just the theories mm. of it. It had one exercise after the other. And I bet you can still find the book out there on the internet somewhere. But that book changed my life. I, wow. I bought it, even though it was one of the ridiculously expensive <laughs> 95 cents. And I took it home and I started doing these things right out of the book. You know, I started out doing the yoga postures and then I came to the chapter on breathing. And I and so by a midnight or so, I was buzzing, you know, because I'd done all the breathing, I'd done the yoga postures, and I got to the chapter on on uh, meditation, and it was just a simple meditation, like saying uh, a mantra like Ram, or I think it was Om, Om, you know, sort of a basic generic meditation. But you know what? After about two minutes, I 
opened up that pure consciousness state again. Hmm. And that was a revelation to me because there it was just easy to get to. And I didn't have to slam myself down on the <laughs> ice in order to make it happen. I'm glad I had that big bang awakening uh -huh. because it, it kind of jolted me out of my unconscious self. But I didn't want to ever have to do that again. Right. And so that started a practice for me where I started doing those kind of practices. And especially one thing I did that took 100 pounds off of me in the course of a year mm was I started eating food. Every time I would get hungry, I would look at what was available and I would ask myself, which would feed my spirit? Mm. Which one of these foods is more likely to feed my spirit? Is it the ham and cheese sandwich with mustard and mayonnaise and two slices of bread that probably had 900 calories in it? Or is it an apple and a salad with some bits of blah, blah, blah cut up in it? You know, and every time my body kept telling me which food to eat. And I remember uh, almost getting high off blueberries, which uh, came to <laughs> season while I was doing this, because I don't know if you've ever sat down and had an entire lunch of just a bowl of blueberries, but I did it during that time because sometimes my body would only crave things that fed that spirit. And the couple mm. of times that I fell off the wagon, I remember there was one time I was, I'd lost about 30 or 40 pounds and I was feeling so good. And I walked past an ice cream store and I saw this family of four devouring um, uh, like a triple banana split kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, I just went in. It was like I was in a trance. And I said, I want one of those. And I remember the lady sort of looking over my shoulder like, uh, is there the rest of your party here? And I <laughs> nope, that's just for me. Anyway, I slugged down about half this thing in about 10 minutes. And I was high as a kite for about I don't know, 20 minutes before the sugar high wore off. And then I felt more depressed than I'd felt in ages because yep. I felt like I'd just blown it, you know. So but the nice thing about spirituality is once you get it on kind of online, so to speak, it keeps calling you back to it because mm. it's the only place where we feel truly aligned. Mm. Because if we're not in touch with that, that open hearted, open, spacious, spiritual part of us, then we don't have any container to hold all of our feelings. We don't have any container to hold all of our wild beliefs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like one of my favorite poets, Walt Whitman said, I am large and contain multitudes. Mm. We are all large and contain multitudes. We're all a symphony of feelings and a parfait of different feelings inside ourselves. And the only way to get to the really good, sweet experience of that pure consciousness all the time is if we're open to the other feelings, too. In other words, a lot of us think that life has two faucets, one faucet called pleasure and the other called pain. And a lot of us have the crazy belief that we're supposed to turn down the pain belief and crank up the pleasure belief. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, there's only one faucet in life, and it has awareness written on it. Mm. And you either turn it up and take what you get, or you keep it turned off. 
I say turn it up because in every experience I've ever had, more awareness takes me to the place of pure consciousness. Because if I can feel grief about something, but be open to that grief, then there's that experience of pure consciousness because it's there holding everything in it all the time. Mm. And so the way to get to it is by opening up to the fullness of ourselves, to the multitudes that we contain. Mm. I love that. Oh, thank you so much for telling that story. That There were so many nuggets in there and metaphors in there that were so brilliant. And it's it's a great reminder that sometimes either literally or, or metaphorically, we need to be knocked on our ass to get to spirituality because I think we can be, well, one, we're so conditioned and programmed. And two, it's interesting to me how we, we fear the most loving thing in the universe. You know, we fear yes. letting go of control. We feel fear surrendering. We fear going into some of our darkness or despair. But when we do, it it opens up to the most loving presence, the, the most loving experience that, you know, we can't even articulate in words. So thank you for sharing all that with us. That was amazing. I do want to talk a little bit about your new book, The Genius Zone, which has a really unique way of helping us eliminate negative thinking, which I know is a problem many of us have. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what inspired this book and, and maybe give us some tips for how we can work with our negative thinking and even define what you think negative thinking is? Yes. Well, in the genius zone, it's about two big things. Uh, the book that preceded it, The Big Leap that mm. you uh, mentioned earlier, uh, came out about oh, 10 or 12 years ago. And so over the past 10 years or so, I've really done a lot more work with people and found out how to take the big leap material into a whole new dimension. And that's what's in the new book, The, uh, the Genius Zone. So having said that, the two big things the new book is about is how to overcome your negative thinking so that you automatically release more of your genius every day. And many of us spend far too much of our time in the negative thinking zone where we're comparing ourselves to where we think we ought to be rather than celebrating ourselves for exactly where we are and loving ourselves for exactly where we are. So we get into a whole cycle of critical thinking, bouncing around up in that negative thinking zone, comparing ourselves to other people and finding fault with where we are. And I was just talking to a very successful person this morning, for example, who makes himself absolutely miserable by comparing himself to a relative who, <laughs> imagine the situation where I'm worth $50 million, let's say, and my older brother is worth $75 million. <laughs> and instead of celebrating the fact that I'm worth $50 million, I spend my time giving myself a lot of crap because I'm not where my brother is. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that's an example of what I'm talking about. Mm. And so no matter where you are in life, I it's mean, I've literally yeah. had in people in this room that have won Grammys and Oscars and things like that. When I'm And when I've coached them, what I find out is 
they don't spend any time celebrating where they are. They spend a lot of their time criticizing themselves about where they are not. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, a symptomatic problem around the world. And one of the ways you can deal with that problem is by claiming more of your genius. And so in the new book, The Genius Zone, the two things it's about is how to spot what I call genius moments and how to do something I call the genius move, Mm. which then allows you to slip organically into your genius. So that's what the new book is about. And by the way, uh, uh, I'll give you some detail on that in a moment, how to do that. But uh, it's worth really sitting down for an hour because it's like having an hour long session with me mm. because it's got uh, it's got processes in it that you can do in 15 or 30 seconds or a minute or something like that. But if you don't do them, you don't get as much out of the book. So right. uh, the other day on Instagram, uh, some people sent me uh, pictures. Uh, a woman sent me a picture of her in a bikini reading the genius zone on the beach. <laughs> and I said, great, you know, that's great for beach reading, but I want you to go home and put yourself in a room for an hour and do the processes. Uh, so with that said, the the new book shows you how to spot what I call genius moments. And a genius moment, oddly enough, can be a moment where you feel most stuck, hmm. where you feel imploded, where you're locked up in negative thinking, because there is the moment where you can have your biggest breakthrough if you know what to do. And here's what to do. And again, I want you to take the book and do the three or four exercises that'll really, you know, lock this down in your body. But the thing you need to do is when you feel stuck or that you can't go on or you feel some despair or however you describe that, when you get in a low spot, what you do in that moment is ask yourself the following question. What am I trying to control here that is not within my power to control? Mm. Because just as philosophers like Epictetus found 2,000 years ago, one huge problem of human existence is that we spend our time up in that negative thinking zone in the mind trying to control things that we don't have any control over. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Epictetus, he's one of my favorite human beings of all time. Um, he was a big teacher back 2,000 years ago in um, in uh, Rome. And the first thing he taught was this. He said, the secret of happiness is knowing that there are some things you can control and some things you cannot. Mm. If that's familiar, if that sounds familiar, it's because It's the heart and soul of things like the serenity prayer that millions of people in 12-step programs, the idea of letting go of trying to control things that you have no control over. Mm. And so many of us get tied up in, you know, what does the world think of me? And what do other people think of me? And all of those things that we have absolutely no control over. And that takes our attention away from the very obvious things we could do in this moment to make our lives better. I love that. I love that. I just want to speak, you just speak for a second to people that think they're too ordinary, that they don't have 
genius. Like they hear the word genius and they go, oh no, that's not me. That doesn't apply to me. What do you, what would you say to them? Wow. Well, that's such a great question. And I, what I would say to them is I haven't met any ordinary people yet on this planet. (laughs) Me neither. (laughs) (laughs) So I would just love it if, uh, see that to me is what I call an upper limit belief that if we doubt our creativity, if we doubt our genius, we create beliefs about it. And one of the most common ones is, I'm ordinary, I'm not creative. Hmm. But I want everybody to examine that because, you know, I've been around this planet now the equivalent of 32 times or 33 times, wow. something like that, and, and uh, taught in dozens and dozens and dozens of different countries around this, the world. If you're down in Australia, you come up against something that every Australian knows about. Oh, the tall it's poppy. It's called the tall poppy syndrome. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you go to Sweden, you come up against a concept that every Swede knows, logum. Logum mm-hmm. means don't be too much, don't be too little. Stay down in the pack. Just like the tall poppy sy- mm-hmm. syndrome says, don't stick your head above the crowd. Stay down in the pack. Well, I'll tell you, There's no big fun to be had down in the pack. (laughs) No. There's safety. There's security maybe of a sort, as long as the crowd doesn't decide to turn around and trample you. (laughs) But, you know, in every type of animal, you know, there's this uh, branch of um, animal psychology called ethology, I think it is, where they study animal migrations and how animal herds work. And there's always five or 10% of animal herds that go off on the horizon. They don't stick around with the herd. They kind of go off and and look for the new stuff and look for where the new grazing fields are. Sometimes, sure, they get eaten. But there's this calling in many of us to be out there investigating the edges of things. And I think that we all have that within us if we go deeply enough inside. So if anybody says that they don't have creativity, that they're ordinary, I want you to look a little deeply and simply ask yourself this question, which I think is the best question to ask to find your genius. What do I do that I most love to do? What do I most love to do? Like think about your day, your waking day, or let's say you have a job and and think of your whole day as you go through that job and ask yourself, is there some aspect of it that I just love to do? Because there almost always is. But even if there isn't, We need to ask ourselves that question. What do I most love to do? Because that inevitably leads to the next question, which is, what can I do that I most love to do that will make my biggest contribution to other people? Mm. That to me, if you put those two things together, that's all in the book, by the way, in in the genius zone, but uh, just in this moment, Ask yourself, what do I most love to do that also makes my biggest contribution to other people? And if you can live in the sweet spot of that question, I can predict many miracles of manifestation because that's exactly what happened to me. Once I discovered this way back, you know, probably four decades ago now, when I first started asking myself that question, 
I realized I was only spending about 10% of my time doing what I most love to do. And so I got busy on increasing that to 20% and <laughs> 30%. And, you know, since for the last 20 years or so, I've basically spent virtually 100% of my time only doing things that I most love to do. And I highly recommend it because you don't have a job then. You know, I wanted to invent a job in my life that I would never want to retire from. And I'm just <laughs> as excited about it today in my 70s as I was in my 30s when I first kind of designed the work I wanted to do in the world. But it's all based that. around what I think is sacred to human beings, which is finding something that you love to do and then doing it in a way that contributes to others. I find the greatest life satisfaction in the sweet spot of that. Yeah. I, I love those two questions. And I think it's important to encourage people to like, let it be simple. Because I think sometimes people think, well, it has to be something that could translate to a career and I have to help millions of people. Like I have to go save children in other countries. It's like, no, you could love decorating and how it helps others is it brings a smile to their face. Like we can start very basic, very simple and not attach it to, it has to be this big thing that's going to impact millions and it's going to make me millions or any of those things. I think we just get a little too in our head and we, we forget about the basic things that brought us joy. Like I think back to the things I love to do as a kid. And one of my most favorite things to do as a kid, I loved playing bank and I loved playing teacher. And what do I do now? I teach and I'm an entrepreneur. You know, like I, <laughs> I, I love to teach and I've always loved to teach. And when I was, I, my earliest childhood memory is and we, well, I was born in Wisconsin. Then we moved to Texas when I was like two and a half. So it was before I was two and a half. So this is like a very early memory of lining all my stuffed animals up on the stairs because we had a two-story house in Wisconsin. We didn't have a two-story house in Texas. Lining them all up and talking to them like they were my students. And this was, you know, I was two. And so I think these things are, they're in us, you know, they're in our soul and teleki. And it just takes kind of putting aside all our limiting beliefs and all our expectations and all our conditioning and just being curious about, hmm, what do I really love to do? So those are great, two great questions. What do I love to do and what's the, the, the thing that I love to do that impacts the most people? And that's our genius zone. Brilliant. Yeah. So good. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to ask you too, I, I have found, and again, you've been in personal transformation for many years, that it's great to, you know, look at our issues and, and process our stuff and, you know, go down the therapy route if that's helpful for us. And sometimes it can be even more important to really focus on the direction we want to go. And what I really see in your book is for people that are having a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, a lot of what do I do, instead of trying to solve whatever problem they have, they're really kind of looking a different direction of like, what's going to put me in a genius zone. And it's going to get them more in that creative energy than the fix it energy. Would you say that's true? Oh, I, I totally agree with that. As a matter of fact, that is a really key healing point. I think, you know, I've been in rooms full of, I've given talks to rooms full of medical doctors and rooms full of dentists and that, you know, people from different professional healing modalities, psychiatrists and psychologists, of course. And one of the things that I really make a point of is as you start opening up to your genius, you ask yourself a better series of questions, you know, like what is my genius and what can I do that makes my biggest contribution to others? When you're in that other zone, 
when you're in the zone of your negative thinking, you're asking yourself all of these wrong questions mm. like, what's wrong with me? And, uh, you know, why can't I get ahead? And all of those kind of questions that if you ask those kind of questions, your mind will come up with thousands of different answers to those. But it's like having your ladder leaned against the wrong wall. You know that yep. no matter how hard you high you climb, you're not going to get anywhere. But to me, I'm glad we got onto the subject of, of questions, because to me, questions are one of the best things human beings can do for moment to moment um, mm. transformation. Because if you ask yourself a question around here, we call them wonder questions. If you ask yourself a genuine wonder question, it's a question you really don't know the answer to. And your life would really change if you did learn the answer to it. So that's a powerful question. I remember the life, uh, a man's life changing pretty much in front of my eyes one day when we came across, he was in his 30s, he was a professional. As a matter of fact, he was a, um, a psychiatrist and, uh, you know, gone through medical education and all of that. And yet he couldn't get his relationships to work. And in this one session, he got down to the big question that he really needed to answer, which is, how can I get the kind of love I want and need in my life that will really feed my soul? How can I have the kind of love in a relationship that will really feed my soul? And about three months later, a woman came into his life, and here we are now. Uh, they've been married almost as long as Katie and I have. Katie and I are about to have our 40th wedding anniversary. Oh, wow. And uh, I, I keep up with uh, this client because he's gone on to be well-known in his area. And uh, so we stay in touch uh, professionally. And he's created 35 years of a happy relationship out of asking the right questions. Mm. Before then, he was always asking himself, what's wrong with me? You know, why can't I ever find, you know, a love that's satisfying? And why do all my relationships eventually go sour? So the right question pre creates genuine miracles. So wherever you're listening, whatever field you're in, if you're listening to this, I encourage you to Take time each day to figure out what your big question is that if you really got the answer to it would change your life. Mm, I love that. I love that. Really stop asking what's wrong with me or why don't I have what I want and start asking questions like, what do I really love? What do, what are the things that would really fill my soul? What makes me laugh? Just I, that it is a totally different feeling when we ask this question. So that's such a great story too. And to me, that's part of what do we want to call it? Manifestation or law of attraction or communicating with the universe. Because when our curiosity is directed in the direction of where we want to go versus looking at the problem, the universe starts providing the direction we want to go, right? Instead of us like banging our head up against the wall, trying to solve a problem all the while, God, spirit, universe, whatever we want to call it is like, there's nothing wrong with you. There's no problem here. Look the other direction. So I, I love that, that question reframe. And that's a really tangible action everybody can take with them. Last question here for you, Gay. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, 
And this is a great last question. In the book, you talk about the power of completions. Can you tell us what you mean by completions and why that's so important? Yes, completions are simple as, let's say, that you walk away from a conversation and you get in your car and you're driving away and all of a sudden you realize that there was something you really needed to talk to that person about, but spaced it out or maybe mm. felt anxious about it and decided not to do it. But that kind of lingering sense of incompletion, you had something that was in your heart and on your mind and needed to get out your throat, and yet you didn't let it out your throat. And so those are a lot of uh, types of incompletions are personal incompletions in the communication area. Mm. Mm. And uh, another type of incompletion is let's say there's some project that is important to you, but you haven't done anything on it. So you had an intention, let's say, to start writing your book this year. And then for one reason or another, here it is September, and you realize, oh, I haven't started my book yet. And so those are incompletions as far as actions that haven't been taken. So those would be a couple of popular examples mm -hmm. of incompletion. You've got something in your heart, but hasn't got it out your mouth is a popular one. Mm. Well, I'm going to have to call somebody after this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> uh oh, I've ruined your entire day. No, 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 no. It's good. I was like, ah, eh, it doesn't matter. I don't need to say it, but I do. No, always err on the side. Always err on the side of saying too much rather than too little. Mm. Well, a person can can always tell you to knock it off, or you've too much detail, or something like that. But what they can't respond to is something that doesn't get out your throat. That's true. People aren't mind readers. Uh, you're, you're so full of wisdom and just joy. And just this last conversation, I feel like my, my joy level has gone up in the past hour. So thank you so much for just being such an embodiment of, of consciousness and love. And I'd love for you to share. I imagine people can get your new book, the genius zone, Amazon, all the places, but could you please share where they can connect with you personally, if they want to learn more about you and your work and other books? Yes. Well, our, our, big website is uh, simply called Hendrix.com, and that's H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S.com. And uh, then we have our uh, not-for-profit foundation called the Foundation for Conscious Living, and that has its own website, mm. uh, foundationforconsciousliving.com. And so that's where we do a lot of our outreach to the public about free resources and things like that. And our trainings are all described over at Hendrix.com. We do two big trainings a year and then a bunch of uh, little ones now mostly done on Zoom. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of these days, though, we hope to uh, crank them back up in, act in uh, personal yeah. action. Yeah. Well, I've seen you on stage before and you are, are amazing in front of a room. So you need to be in front of people again <laughs> so they can experience that. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing such wisdom and incredible stories. I have so much respect and appreciation for you and the body of work that you've created and just who you are as a person, as a spiritual being, having a human experience. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Well, thank you so much, Christine. And thank you for spending your time in your genius zone here as you're obviously doing. Mm, my pleasure. <laughs>